Welcome to Season 3. And this tradition unlike any other. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 3 of the Business Culture Podcast. It's great to have you along again. My name is Rob Arnold, your host. And we've got another great guest lined up for this episode, none other than Jonathan Menti, the general manager of the Heritage Club in Mauritius. I've had the fortune of knowing Jono for quite a few years, and uh, he's had a really interesting career, both uh, in South Africa and now obviously abroad in Mauritius as well. We chatted about some key insights relating to people management, understanding different types of cultures, especially contrasting South Africa with Mauritius, and just generally what some of the key lessons have been along the way in that journey that Jono has had. I hope you take great value from the interview. Um, I grew up in Durban and started playing golf at about the age of 10, 11. Uh, we used to go down to uh, the public course then. It was called uh, Papua, named after Papua Sugolum. And there was another one called Windsor. So those were the two public courses. And you used to put your ball in a little chute and wait your turn to tee off. You know, when your ball got to the, the yeah. bottom of the chute, it was your turn. Um, so that's where my golf started. Um, and I mean, I was, I was a decent sportsman, so the golf bug bit me. And by the age of 15, I think I played my first interprovincial on a tell um, in the under 18 team. Uh, and that was at Paul. And that was my first exposure to the likes of Charles Swartzel, um, Richard Sterney. Uh, so I was, I'm in that sort of um, era of of golfers you've given away your age nice and early there yeah i hope, I hope it's not too old um but yeah that that really i mean i've still got very imprinted memories of of that tournament in particular and seeing that level of golf from from those guys um and yeah the the bug really bit from then on and i wanted to become a professional golfer um you know but as as things go you need a lot of money uh to get started in professional golf or someone backing you um and i didn't particularly have that so I was kind of relying on my talent mostly. Um, I had a bit of technical coaching in my matric year, uh, but after that, you know, didn't really go for much coaching and tried to to give it a go. So I didn't really have a team structure around me, which I realized post those years is really important, even just for a pro golfer. That support system is is very important. Um, so I gave it a bash on on the Sunshine Tour Tour School in 2005. Uh, made it into the top 50 after the first two rounds, but didn't uh, get into the top 30, which you needed to get into to make it onto the tour. I think I finished 42nd or something like that. And that was my one shot. And then I decided, okay, well, my golf is my passion. Don't necessarily have the funding to keep flogging this thing. So I need to work. Uh, so I went to work in golf. Um, I started at Mabalingue, uh, which changed its name to Zebula while I was there. Um, that was a really interesting place to work. I worked with some interesting characters. Uh, that's where I first got to meet Dale Hayes in person because uh, he used to do a lot of work there. And in those days, he was helping with the marketing. Um, and then uh, my second director there, used to work for Rob Selly. And Rob Selly was one of the more prominent South African PGA members. And he hired me to work with him at the River Club in Johannesburg. 
which is nicknamed the CEO's Club. So I got to meet a lot of high-profile people there. Um, so Cyril Ramaphosa actually interrupted my interview, uh, and Rob Rob had to uh, take a phone call with him while I was being interviewed by Rob. Um, so that's kind of the the company that I got to keep there, um, and I've still got some members who've uh, remained friends with me. Um, even until today. And um, that's also when I got to meet Langley parents at the River Club. And Lang then asked me to go down and help with the Pinnacle Point Pro Shop, uh, which I did. So I worked with uh, Wayne Crambeck and Jason Totus um, at Pinnacle Point. Um, and that was just a magnificent golf course. I remember the first time driving the course and just being absolutely blown away by the drama uh, that's out there. It's I don't even know how they built that course. It must have been such a challenge. But yeah, beautiful place. And then um, from there, as I started to look to settle down a bit, um, Mossel Bay was a little bit isolated for me. Um, so I spoke to Lang and I said to him, you know, if anything becomes available in one of the bigger cities, I'd, I'd like to go that route. And um, it wasn't quite a big city, but a bit closer was Arabella. So he sent me down to the Arabella shop uh, to run that. Um, and to bring a bit of stability to the retail business there. And then when John Bumstead retired, uh, I took over as the director of golf from John. Um, so I spent the better part of about five and a half years at Arabella. And I used to bring tour groups out from Arabella to Mauritius from time to time. Um, and it was fate, whatever you want to call it. Um, we were meant to be playing at a, a course called Belmar Plage which has two courses, Links and the Legends. And they happened to be hollow tining at the time that I was due to bring the members, the Arabella members out to their course. So we changed locations. Um, and at that time, uh, the previous manager had resigned and they were looking to fill the position here. I really wasn't looking for anything, honestly, um, even though I knew the position uh, was available. Um, but as you said earlier, the stars align. And within, I think it was a month, a month and a half, I was living in Mauritius after that trip. Um, so they interviewed me whilst I was on holiday with the Arabella members. And yeah, a month later, um, I was asked to come and fill the position here. And it's I'm now in my seventh year of living in Mauritius. We've made a life for ourselves here. We've sold our house in South Africa, bought a house here. Uh, my boys, uh, one of them was three weeks old when we left South Africa. And my other boy is four years old and he was born in Mauritius. Um, so they've spent all of their lives here and enjoying the Mauritian lifestyle. Sure, Jono, that's, uh, that's, that's an incredible, um, I suppose, collection of properties and places to have worked at at a relatively young age. Um, I wanted to take a few steps back and, and that that time when when the sort of playing career was was... I suppose not going to materialize and, and you went into the golf, um, the management space and the operation space. And I'm, I'm thinking more for, for the likes of the, of the guys going into that space now who are finding their feet, you know, in reflection and looking back in those early years, what were some of the things that, that, that were quite stark learning curves for you or quite difficult to kind of grasp in the sense that there wasn't much experience and as we all do, we have to start somewhere. But what, what were kind of some of those, those hard lessons to learn that in reflection you think have taught you some really good principles as you find yourself now where you are? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, dealing with when, when I got into the industry, 
Um, I'd been work, doing like odd coaching jobs before, but I started my PGA apprenticeship at the age of 22. And that's kind of when I stepped into a, a bit more of a corporate environment, um, company environment at Zebula. And the, the first learning I took was just, you know, how, how passionate owners can be about their asset. So whether they're developing property with the golf course or whether it's a standalone golf club um, and it's owned by the members, I think any stakeholder um, and especially an owner or a shareholder is generally very passionate about their property. And I didn't always understand the, the negative side of that passion when it came out um, from the owner or shareholder. Uh, being a youngster, you know, it was my first exposure to a business, a proper business environment. Um, and that's always something that I've, I've kept with me is that the perspective of the guy just entering the company um, is to try and always treat them as fairly as possible and not presume that they have the understanding that I now have after seven, I don't even know how many, 20 years, 20 years of, of working in, in golf operations. Um, so that, that was the first thing is that it was a big wake up call um, to, to try and absorb the, the passion of the owner there um, about his product. Um, and then the, the, the second thing I think that was a big learning curve was customer service uh, because you go in with no customer service training at all. Um, you're hired as someone, especially as an entry-level apprentice who can play golf, who understands golf but you don't necessarily understand the customer. Um, so you're relying on your natural ability to interact with people. And at that stage, you've either got it or you don't have it. Um, some people are more emotionally intelligent than others. Um, some people understand what people want and some, some just don't. Some are introverts, some are extroverts. And, and we're all different. And I think that was a big learning curve for me. Not that I particularly feel like I struggled. Um, with the customer service element. But I remember thinking at one point when I first, first got in was, you know, why is there such a big emphasis on customer service in this place? I, I couldn't understand why uh, people would not want to serve their customers well, but at the same time, why the company placed so much emphasis on it, why the PGA placed so much emphasis on it, um, because I, I came in blind um, and, and I, it was one of the points that stuck with me. I particularly remember thinking, why this big emphasis on customer service? And it was only after getting you know, my, my feet wet, kind of after a few years, realizing, okay, well, this is, this is what it's all about. This is what our leaders should be doing in the golf industry, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it, it, when you come in as a youngster, there's, there's so much to learn. A quick break to check in with our sponsor for this interview, RCA Consulting. RCA have been doing work in the learning and development space for the last 12 years, working with a range of different types of companies and organizations to facilitate the enhancement of their organizational culture through blended learning and performance management. To get a free needs analysis for your organization, go over to rcaconsulting.biz to find out more. Without further ado, back to the episode. And I think, you know, those are two really important points you brought up there. I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit further into that one answer that you gave around some people have, are naturally more empathically wired, I suppose, or have a, a natural high degree of emotional intelligence. 
in your opinion, how much of that can you teach and how much of it is just natural wiring? I mean, where do you net out on that, on that sort of spectrum? You know, we are all who we are. Um, I don't think you can necessarily change someone's personality, but I think you can bring the best out of them. And very often um, when someone is shy, they might have had negative experiences leading up to that point. But if you are someone as a manager or leader who encourages them, uh, builds them up and, and tries to bring the best out of them, very often you can bring someone who, see, who is seemingly an introvert mm-hmm. and you, you, you bring that personality out of them. So I think it's, it's kind of the, the nature-nurture argument. And it is a bit of both, no doubt. You know, some people are naturally gregarious, mm. natural sales people. And no matter how much training you give someone, they might not be as outspoken as the next. But in terms of service, for example, I mean, I recently came back to South Africa for a family holiday. And one of the hotels that we stayed at was the Protea Fire and Ice at Amschlange. And each person there had very different personalities. Some came across a little bit stronger than others, or but they were so similar in terms of the service standards and the service was, it was excellent. And I wasn't at a, it's not a five-star property, you know, mm. um, but they'd all been trained so well um, that I never noticed the personality differences. And I think that's one of the tricks of the hospitality industry is that you've got to almost pretend that you're in a production. So when you clock in in the morning, um, you know, the curtains open, the spotlight is on you and, and you've got to put on a performance sometimes. And, and it's how well we can sometimes put on that performance uh, that determines the success of our service. Yeah, John, I can't agree with you more. I think there's an element of theatre definitely in, uh, in, in the approach because it isn't, a, I suppose, a completely natural dynamic. It is somewhat, I suppose, staged to a certain extent. Um, but I also think, and I wanted to get your, your impression on this, is that you know, you've had the benefit of seeing a few different environments now um, from, from Zabula days all the way through to now in, in Mauritius. And obviously being under different managers, different leaders, and within different environments, I would have thought that you would have naturally latched onto some of those more so than others. Um, can you maybe speak to us a little bit about what you've noticed about the differences, differences in culture when it comes to those environments that you've been exposed to and, and how culture plays a role in, I suppose, us getting the best out of our staff or us getting the best out of ourselves if we're that staff member being in, that, in those different spaces? Yeah, sure. I think um, at the end of the day, you know, at our at our base level, uh, we're we're all people with with basic needs, um, and what I have always fallen back on is to treat people with care. So to whether it's the the customer or uh, the staff member. Because I, I honestly don't believe you can bring the best out of someone by treating them badly. Um, and it's, it's something that I've, I've had to learn because often as uh, managers, especially a young manager, you are at times out of your depth. Uh, you're still learning yourself. And then 
you're expected to lead a, a, a team of people who are looking at you for, for that leadership. Um, and perhaps out of being a bit naive, my experience um, has been that I've, I have personally said and done things that I look back now as a more mature leader, and I look back and think, well, I could have done that a bit better, um, or I could have done it a different way. But you don't know what you don't know. Um, and that's where I've got a lot of respect um, for people who have shown consistency in the industry. Um, if I look at someone like Jeff Claus, for example, um, even though I've never worked for Jeff, um, I can draw principles from him. Um, you know, if I look at uh, his, his reputation in the industry, it's, I think it speaks for itself, which says something about how he treats people. Um, I could say the same, for example, about Chris Bentley at Rand Park, uh, at um, uh, Royal Johannesburg. Um, you know, the, these are the kinds of people that are making a name for themselves uh, in the industry. And I think it's because of the way they treat their customers, but also the way they treat their staff. And then personally for me, um, I've had some good bosses and I've had some bad bosses and I've, I've looked at various aspects of their personalities and no one's perfect. So I've always tried to draw the good from what I've learned from each person that I've worked with and for, and then inculcate that um, into the way I lead. Um, and what's given me a, a great perspective is getting international experience um, because I think when you, when you are cocooned in a society, you only know that society and you, you only know the, the culture and the character traits of that society. So if there is a better way of doing things, you don't necessarily know about it unless you're trained um, by, let's say, an international expert um, or you get some sort of um, international exposure. And that's where I feel uh, really lucky to be in the position that I am now and that um, I've had a French boss uh, and I've now got a Mauritian boss. So I'm learning from all these different cultures uh, all the time. And there, there are definitely positives that I've drawn uh, from each of them and the different leadership styles that come with all the different cultures. Mm. Yeah, and it, you strike me as the kind of person who's, who's very... I guess, very observant, very open to, to seeing how these things differ or how these approaches differ. Rather, you mentioned the difference, differences in leaders that you've had. And, and as you alluded to as well as the fact that you've had, I guess, that South African context as well as the Mauritian context, um, I, I would have thought putting you very much out of your comfort zone in the initial move across there and the different societal norms and cultures there. Um, can, can you maybe elaborate on how different it was in the beginning and what the sort of challenges are? Because I think principally, regardless of what environment you go into, I think one's approach, there's a lot to learn from that. So I'd be very interested to kind of go into some of the specifics around what it was like in those early first couple of months uh, in the new space. Yeah, it, it was really, really, a, it's a typically South African way of describing things, but hectic. Um, to give you a bit of background, I just registered with UNISA to study a fun, uh, Bachelor of Commerce in Financial Management uh, four months before I got the job. 
I promised myself that I'd finish my degree. Um, and then uh, we found out that a few months prior to that, uh, that uh, my wife was pregnant. And so we were just about to have our first child and we had just bought our first house together all in, in 2015. Um, and then within the space of a month to have to drop all of those plans and move over uh, was a shock to the system. So I came over first without uh, my wife and my son, um, but they came over pretty soon afterwards. Uh, my son was three weeks old when uh, he and my wife flew over. So we had a three-month-old baby uh, living in an old sugarcane house um, in a foreign country um, with none of our own furniture, basically just um, our suitcases that we came over with. And it was difficult because it's a very different culture to South Africa. Um, the people are extremely friendly, extremely welcoming. I honestly cannot say that I felt unwelcome at that time. Um, if I asked for anything, um, you know, I had help. And But where, where it was a struggle is, is the simple things, like how do I get to the shop? How do I get to the office where I need to register as, as an expat worker in Mauritius? Mm. How many times do I need to go back to that office? Um, and in South Africa, we, we do come with high expectations, I think, because, you know, whatever you say about South Africa, there are things that work really well. And when, for example, in a, in a different country like Mauritius, where they're very much more paper-based than digital, um, and you've got to go back three or four times to get a process completed, that, that's something that's quite different. Mm. And our culture in South Africa, we are very friendly, very friendly people. Um, you know, when I, when I came back recently, I was absolutely blown away with how friendly everyone was and welcoming, etc. But as I mentioned earlier, we are also very demanding and we voice our complaints and we're not scared to be forth, forthright and forthcoming with those complaints and a bit hard. And that doesn't work in the Mauritian culture at all. Um, my experience is that you, you have to tone it down um, you have to be uh, a part of the culture here. You absolutely cannot come and try and impose your culture um, on, on another country. Um, that's been my experience in Mauritius. And I've loved learning from the Mauritian people and adopting uh, you know, the, the way they do things uh, that could be of benefit to me. Mm. And I think through that... I've, I've learned how to interact with the various cultures that you have in Mauritius and South Africa is also very multicultural, uh, but I think Mauritius equally so. Um, and yeah, the, the people here are, are really great, very, very friendly, uh, a softer culture than the South African culture. And, and I've enjoyed learning about how to emotionally engage with that. And, and to make that part of, of who I am now. It's, it's super interesting the way you've explained that. And I wanted to ask, you know, when you say that they don't respond, I guess, to, I suppose, a very prescriptive kind of, you know, FIFO kind of approach, um, 
Have you found yourself kind of being a bit more democratic in the way that you engage with them? Have you found yourself um, kind of making sure that they come along because they want to? Is that the kind of dynamic, I guess, that is more apparent there? Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, it's even for for the leader's own comfort, I would say, um, because you, you, you honestly will not get to the end goal by being too prescriptive. Um, there are obviously instances, I think, in any business where a little bit of prescription comes in, but it's how you do it um, and explaining the why we are going down this road. But I think it's a, it's a well-known leadership principle in that trying to bring people along with you on whatever journey you're on and whatever vision you have for your business is a lot more effective than saying, I want X, Y, and Z, especially as an employee. You know, if, if you own the land or if you own the business or the building or whatever it might be, it's perhaps a little easier to be prescriptive. But when you're also an employee, um, I think the mistake that I've seen is that managers at golf clubs tend to just to keep the, the wording simple, it's become maybe a slightly big-headed and to to call it my course, uh, my team, my whatever. Mm. Um, I don't really think that's the appropriate wording. Um, I definitely think it's more effective um, to say our, you know, our course and, and working together. Um, yeah. And certainly in a Mauritian context, definitely more effective. Just taking a few steps back, do you think with those leaders and managers that you worked under historically, do you feel that you were more connected to those who kind of adopted that approach where it's more about getting people to come along with you because you want to do it, not because they want you to do it? Do you think that's fair and accurate? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and especially for one's longevity at, at the club. Um, Yes, you know, your leader can be prescriptive, but you're going to be looking elsewhere in a pretty short space of time because I don't think it's the natural way to live life. Um, and the mistake that I believe companies make is, is forgetting that they're dealing with people who are highly emotional beings. And by, by not acknowledging that side of people and being too prescriptive, I think it's creates a, a, an environment that could be conducive to achieving short-term goals, achieving things quickly, but the mid-term to long-term uh, vision, I think, could suffer as, as a result of being too prescriptive and, and too bossy. Mm. Um, and I've, I've got some examples in mind, which, which I, won't, I won't share, but I've, I've kind of seen it. Um, and yeah, like I say, I mean, I've, I'll point the finger straight back at myself. As a younger manager, there were times when I was too prescriptive and that's it's definitely something that I've had to unlearn and learn how to emotionally engage on, on a deeper level with, with staff to bring them uh, on a journey. Do you think that as, a, as an individual, you are you're quite conscious of, of previous actions like you've just mentioned, like quite naturally reflective of... How you've how you dealt with a certain situation and try and be mindful of that in terms of facing that or a similar situation in the future. Do you do you feel that sort of part of your personality? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 
certainly I'm not I'm not perfect at it. Um, but you know, I like to think that I do reflect maybe on the, the moments where I didn't live up to the expectations of what a what a good leader is. Um, and even go back to people and, and say, look, I didn't handle that correctly. Um, I'm sorry about that. This is what I meant. Um, and this is why I said it. And, you know, would you come along with me? Um, even though I didn't do it, you know, I didn't say it right the first time. It's like I, I found that as long as you um, drop the ego and just give a good solid, um, you know, why, the why as to, to, to your requests, um, it, it happens a lot easier. So reflection yeah. does help with that. It's, it's definitely, I think, uh, becoming more accepted that, you know, even the best of the best out there from a leadership point of view are quite comfortable with the fact that they, that they don't know everything, that they're not meant to know everything, um, that they have vulnerabilities and, uh, you know, areas where they're not the strongest. And, you know, that's okay. People still follow that kind of person more because of the fact that they are at ease with that rather than the fact that they try and hide it. And it's, I suppose it allows you to connect more with that person. On a, on a, like you said earlier, on a more human uh, human level. But I think one of the things, and you, you mentioned the word there, unlearning as well, is you know, being willing to, to adapt and move with the times, which I think the, the club industry is very much in the space of now as things, so many things change. What, what's your philosophy from a club perspective on things like, I guess, education and I guess getting people into a, some kind of a growth culture or growth phase so that they don't stagnate, you know, they don't get into a rut and I guess some positions are tough because the, the nature of the job is very repetitive but at the same time you want to try and create an environment where people are stimulated with new information what's what's been your approach whether it be in-house or outsourced or whatever the case might be to kind of solving for that that challenge on an ongoing basis I think the first step for me is understanding what the individual's goals are uh, because I've had both sides of the coin I've had employees um, generally who may be slightly older who are very comfortable in their positions and they just want to do a good job where they're at and they, they're very good at it um, and they don't necessarily want the pressure of learning, growing, um, you know, they, they're happy where they are. Um, and so with, with those kind of people, it's important to also understand where they're at and, and not to force the issue. Because we can tend to, because we always want to do better, grow more, get more, you know. And so you've got that kind of, it is admittedly the minority by, by a long way, but you've got that kind of person. And then most of your guys are looking for a bit of growth. Um, some people more apprehensive than others, but I've always preferred to take the individual approach and keep an open door policy to say, okay, let's let's have a coffee together, uh, let, or you know, come to my office, let's have a chat, because I'd like to understand where you're at and what your goals are, and how we can make that work with where the company is at at the moment, and move you on the career path that you want, so that there's like a dual benefit to the individual and to the company. So again, rather than being prescriptive and saying, okay, this is how I would like to structure things. And this is where you are going to go, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, these are the educational courses that you will do. Um, you know, obviously there's the, there's the foundation that you need to lay. So if you're talking to your food and beverage team, 
it's obvious that the training for the most part is going to be within the food and beverage space. But there's definitely also space for, again, emotional intelligence training or well-being training or whatever it might be so that they at least feel, you know, that they are growing uh, as, as people as well. I really enjoy that, um, that, sorry to jump in, but I really enjoy that, that approach because I think it, it really does empower the individual to feel, again, like you've alluded to, that it's less prescriptive and it's, um, it's more on their own terms, which I think increases the degree of motivation to actually want to do it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I've been surprised when I've spoken to people on what I think would be good for them and what they think would be good for them. And then it's kind of trying to marry whether it be the training budget that you've got and the available training courses that a provider can provide and then trying to marry your expectations and that of the person who's actually being trained. Mm. Um, so there's all those different facets to try and take into account. Um, but I think if you take the, put the time and effort in, you usually get the output um, is usually a lot better than just putting someone on a two-day course, for example, that they're going to forget next month. Yeah, so true. I, I, I really, I mean, I, I think inherently, I guess it's it's more work on the part of someone like yourself being the leader to take the the more one-on-one individual approach. But I think your, as you just alluded to there, you know, your return on that effort is so much greater when I think they feel like it's been curated, I suppose, for for their needs rather than the the needs of the collective. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as I say, there are practical needs. Mm. So there, there will be a collective uh, training plan, let's say. But I think there should always be space uh, for the individual and it will definitely engage them more. I also just wanted to, to take a little t- a bit of time to touch on you're involved in a very cool new project within the space that you work in. Um, you've put yourself in the deep end again by learning a whole a whole new skill set pretty much in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, new course developments. Um, I'd love to just hear your, your views and, and what that's been like to, again, be in a, in a very sort of unfamiliar space. Yeah, I mean, it's been fantastic, to be honest with you. It's a really exciting project. So just to give a bit of background, we're building a second gold course, uh, which is a link style course, uh, which we are trying to position uh, in the top 100 in the world. Uh, it's been co-designed by Peter Matkovich and Louis Wurstazen. Uh, we've launched a really exclusive membership. And the way the course will run is that it will be only members, accompanied members, guests, and heritage resorts guests that can play on the course. So it's been a really from, from the, the ground up kind of experience for me. I remember first coming into the position and the CEO at the time said to me, okay, well, where's your financial model for the second course? And, you know, I'd, I'd literally just walked in the door. So it, it was um, a lot of interesting learning uh, to go through. So we built the business model and the financial model for the course um, based on the vision of, of the owners uh, of the land and of the company. And it was very interesting to go through that process and to watch how Uh, Peter, for example, negotiated with the owners on the piece of land that he would get and how many designs it actually takes to get a golf course going. Um, Obviously, you know, I've had tender experience before, but going through all of the tenders, um, 
And then obviously we had COVID. So we were building a new golf course through COVID, which was interesting. Um, but probably the most enjoyable part for me so far has been designing a new membership um, that we've never had before in Mauritius. So I took some of my learning from the River Club, the, the private aspect of the River Club, uh, some of my learning from Pinnacle Point, uh, where in the early days there we had the Platinum membership. So I took some of those uh, elements and, and put them all in a melting pot. And yeah, we've done really well with our membership sales uh, because memberships in Mauritius are still viewed as an appreciating asset. So they have value and they grow in value over time. So people buy into golf clubs to enjoy the golf on the one hand, but to invest on, on the other hand. So that's been a really interesting aspect to design a membership that needs to have value for the long term. So we're at the point now with the course where we're working with a professional communications and PR agency called Landmark in the UK, and they are helping us along the way to positioning the course as a top 100 in the world golf course. And, you know, the, the level of detail that you need to go to to get that right is is quite amazing in terms of your communication and it needs to be so spot on so it's been an experience from golf course design business modeling um, pr and communication and marketing memberships um, obviously growing in the course itself um, getting the buildings done so the clubhouse design etc um, and then yeah of course we we're building up to the opening of the golf course as well. So that'll be another phase of um, enjoyment. Cheapest, John. It sounds hell of exciting. I'm sure you can't wait to see the the finished product because I suppose it's quite a journey to to get to that point. How do you guys find out more about the development and what's happening? And and I suppose the value proposition there, is there a website or anything the guys can go look at? Yeah, so we're almost at the launch phase of our new website for the La Reserve Golf Links. Um, it's going to be Heritage Golf Club branded, but we'll have two golf courses that fall under that brand. Um, so Heritage Golf Club is is the mother brand, let's say. And then we've got the Le Chateau Golf Course, which is the current one, uh, where the DP World Tour event takes place. And then we'll have the La Reserve Golf Links, which will be the other one. And because it's, it's still kind of in its infancy, uh, we're getting together some good imaging, first CGI and then um, natural imaging. Mm. Um, but the, the website will be able to use the CGI and that'll be launched within the next couple of months. Um, so I would say around June, uh, we'd be able to give guys a, a reference point to go to and, and start learning more about the course. But it really is, and I'm, I'm not just saying it because I'm, I'm working here. Um, I had the same sort of dramatic feeling when I saw Pinnacle Point. Um, so it's that kind of drama with a Lynx style golf course. Well, um, yeah, I think any golf, any golf fan is probably chomping at the bit to, to see what the finished product's going to look like. I'm sure it'll be absolutely exceptional with the likes of yourself and, and Peter and, and everyone else involved. So yeah, I wish you, wish you everything of the best in that as the, as the runway kind of comes to the finish and setting that up. Um, and uh, I also just wanted to to move on before we start to finish off. Uh, what we like to do towards the end of our, our interviews is a, a few quick fire questions. 
um, just to just to pick your brain on a few, I suppose, more golf-specific uh, questions. I know you are obviously sure. a golf fan like myself, so you should yeah. roll off the tongue pretty uh, pretty easily, I would have thought. Um, so I'm just going to fire away with them, and you give me your <laughs> your instinctive answer, if I can put it that way. So I'll start with the first one. Um, next South African to win a major. Tough one. Um, Wilco Ninaba. I like, I really, really like that answer. Um, you can only play one or the other for the rest of your life, Parkland or Lynx? Definitely Lynx. <laughs> Easy answer given where, where the focus is at the moment. Uh, yeah. Mr. Mr. Jeff Claus will also love that, uh, that answer. Um, <laughs> the, most, uh, the most impactful or influential golf course, in your opinion, in the world? Obviously, it's a toss-up between St. Andrews and Augusta. But I'd have to say, given the modern balance of power and what they're trying to do in Asia, I'd go with Augusta. Okay. If you, could, if, if, if you were still playing professional golf, if you could either win uh, the Masters or win the Open, which one would you, would you choose? Sorry to my British heritage, but I'd go for the Masters. <laughs> I suppose that green jacket is very, uh, very appealing, eh? Yeah, um, absolutely. You can either drive it like Bryson or putt it like Faxon. Definitely putt it like Faxon. Yeah, that's that's where the money's made. That's the intelligence coming out there. In your, <laughs> in your opinion, who's the GOAT, Tiger or Jack? Tiger. Well, the best run tournament you've ever played in or been a part of or attended? The Masters. Fair comment. Uh, your all-time... Four ball, including yourself, can be dead or alive. It would be myself, my best mate, uh, John T. Heathcote. I think you need to enjoy it with someone that you know, and I know he'd appreciate us probably more than I would. And then I'd go for Tiger. Um, I'm always stuck between Bobby Jones and Jack Nicholas. Just for something different, I'll go Bobby Jones. So Tiger, Bobby Jones, myself, and John T. I'll tell you what, I think uh, John T would be. Pretty quick to give you a response to that invite. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome, John. I think I think those answers speak to uh, speak perfectly to your personality. Um, and yeah, I just wanted just to to kind of conclude and and say thank you so much for you know your your time. First of all, I think you're a great example of uh, a South African a South African chap who's done great things beyond South Africa, which is I think what we all look up to and aspire to. Um, cool. Thanks, and, I think, and I think you're, what's also interesting is, you know, the way I perceive you is, is you're not necessarily the loudest person in the room, but you've done some pretty monumental things regardless. And I think there's a great lesson in that as well. So um, I really appreciate the, the consciousness behind the answers that you gave earlier, because I think okay. it does speak to the fact that there's many more ways than one to skin the cat. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you, you get the loud guys who, who trump their way into things. Um, but there's definitely space for you know the the quieter, more thoughtful, thoughtful person. And there's there's definitely different ways to to get through it all. That's for sure. 